This morning, we're going to make our way with God's help through Acts chapter 25 and 26. Um, And the reason being, the reason we're doing two chapters is most of this material is either self-explanatory or we've already covered it to some degree. And so what we're going to do, because Acts is a historical narrative, I'm going to read through portions as we go. But I've pulled out three truths that we're going to talk about. As I've titled this message, A Tale of Three Pilgrims, we're going to look at three groups of people presented in these two chapters, as I said earlier. And consider what the Scripture says on a wide-angle view of that. And so we're going to let the text, as far as the historical narrative part, speak for itself. I don't need to do much commentary. I'll do little, but we're going to move fairly quickly, okay? So with that, would you begin reading in Acts 25, verse 1. Luke writes this, Now three days after Festus, remember Festus had succeeded Felix, three days after he arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. And the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul. And they urged him, asking as a favor against Paul that he summon him to Jerusalem because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea and that he himself intended to go back shortly. So he said, let the men of authority among you go down with me. And if there's anything wrong about the man, let him bring charges against him. We're going to stop there and talk about this first group, slaves of sin, the Jews. It's a sad case to read that Festus, remember Paul in Acts 24 had been left in prison for two years after the first time under Felix, the Jews came and accused him. So there's been two years gap now between Felix and Festus. And where are the Jews at still? They still want to kill Paul. They have not forgotten Paul. They've not forgotten their death wish against him. And now with this new leader, Festus, they want the opportunity to execute their plan and ambush and kill him. Now, Festus had not been warned as Felix had been warned. Festus did not know about their intentions. But the sad reality is, is this quick summary of where the Jews are at highlights a bigger truth in Scripture. And that's we are slaves of sin. And it's not just the Jews that are slaves of sin. People are slaves of sin. The Jews are simply illustrating for for us and our purposes. This morning, Paul wrote this in Romans 6.16, You are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. The Jews in this passage, unfortunately, are obeying sin. Their sinful, wicked hearts. Everything they're wanting to do against Paul is contrary to the law they say they worship. They just hate truth because it's indicting to them. The issue that the Jews had with the Gospel, even during Jesus' own ministry, was believing the Gospel's claim that they needed to be saved. When Jesus brought up their own unrighteousness, that was the point when they got angry. Now, I know from experience, and I know from witnessing this, that it's not fun to be indicted in sin. No one likes it in your flesh. Your flesh rages against that truth and that claim upon it. Their sin 
however, needed to be exposed. Everyone's sin needed to be exposed because that's the pathway to healing. That's the pathway to salvation. In our own eyes, if we were to evaluate ourselves, and we often do, we find ourselves to be pretty good people. Paul said it this way in, uh, to the Corinthian church. He said, I don't know of anything against myself. If I were to examine myself to be sinful or, or if I have an issue in my life, I don't know of anything right now, but this doesn't justify me. Only God does. God is able to penetrate into the deepest parts of the heart. What we're doing, though, when we compare ourselves and we find in conclusion that, hey, we're pretty good people, what we're doing is we're using an alternative standard of righteousness. Because when we compare ourselves to God's righteousness, there's no way that any of us could actually conclude, I'm pretty good. Paul said it this way in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Even more clear, at the beginning of the chapter, Paul quotes the Old Testament and says this, No one is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God, all have turned aside, together they've become worthless, no one does good, not even one. Now when you preach that truth today, that truth makes people angry. My brother told me of a time he went into uh, some Mormon missionaries' homes in Albuquerque, and he sat down with them and was just talking about the gospel. Of course, they claim to be Christian, but they're a works-based, a righteous, self-righteousness-based religion. And so my brother read that passage, Romans 3, 11 and 12, and he said the husband jumped up off the couch and said, you're misinterpreting that. And Ryan said, I just read it. I didn't interpret it. But what this man had experienced was The Bible is saying you're not righteous, you're not good, and he believed he was. It indicted his heart and it made him angry. We all come under that conviction, but we must come under that conviction. This truth is one of the most important truths to preach because without it, you really won't understand the gospel. We have to understand there's nothing I can do to save myself. I have nothing good to offer God. I can't stand on my own two legs in in some kind of righteous standing. I'm a slave to sin. Why? Because I gave myself to sin to obey it. It's a self-inflicted wound. When we as Christians affirm this, we need to understand that it will upset people. Whether you're preaching to them at work, on the street, or in the church. This is a truth we must keep close. And I'm going to talk about that later. The minute we as a church start straying from this truth, we become proud, haughty, arrogant people. So we must affirm this truth not only in the preaching to others, but in preaching to ourselves. There's an example in the Gospel of John chapter 8 where Jesus confronts the Jews with this very thing. He talks about, hey, I know you're sons of Abraham, but you're not sons of God, right? And in another, in another sense, Abraham was a man of faith. And he says, you're not of faith because Abraham believed in me. You don't. Of course, this makes him angry. So much so that after telling the Jews, I am the one who knows God. I am the one who's come from God. And I've come to save you from your sin because you have your father, the devil. He's a liar. He's a murderer. And you're doing his works indicting them on sin. What they do at the end of that chapter, if you remember, they picked up stones and they wanted to kill him for it. And so this truth is, 
is a true picture of where mankind is at in the world. They are enslaved to their sin. There's nothing they can do to get out of it. That's man's predicament. And we see it horribly illustrated with the Jews in this passage. It's such a sad passage because they've had opportunity after opportunity after opportunity. And as I've preached before, you can't stay neutral with the gospel. You hear it, and it either begins to wrestle with your heart, or you will harden your heart and begin to distance yourself from it. That's what happens internally. That's, that's the testimony of every person. It'll either serve to harden you or soften you, and you'll respond accordingly. The second picture, though, is that of Paul, a new creation. So we're going to read this narrative for quite some time. It's pretty self-explanatory. Let's pick it up in verse 6 of chapter 25. So it's talking of Festus. After he, Festus, stayed among them not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea. And the next day he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. When Paul had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove, just like before. Paul argued in his defense, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offenses. We talked about that last week, what those charges were, so you can listen to the sermon to to freshen up on what he's doing. Verse 9, But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, Do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? But Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal, where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you yourselves know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I don't seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to these charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. And Festus, when he had conferred with his counsel, answered to Caesar, you have appealed to Caesar, you shall go. Now, I do want to say real quick why this is important. Paul refused to go to the Jews. And that's, again, to our first point. Of all the people in the world who should have been judging righteously because they'd been given God's righteous law, it was the Jews. And yet Paul refused to entrust himself to them yet again. Why? He knew he'd be killed. They didn't care about righteousness. They wanted him dead. But as a Roman citizen, Paul could appeal to Caesar and stay under Caesar's custody. And that's what he did. And so, to Caesar you've appealed, to Caesar you shall go. So that's what seals Paul's journey to Rome. We're going to pick that up in chapter 27. Now verse 13. Now when some days had passed, Agrippa the king and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. And as they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, There's a man left prisoner by Felix. And when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered them that it was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the accusers face to face and had opportunity to make his defense concerning the charge laid against him. So when they came together here, I made no delay, but on the next day took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought. When the accusers stood up, they brought no charge in his case of such evils as I supposed. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. 
Being at a loss how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding them. But when Paul had had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, said he said he, you will hear him. So it's just a summary, basically, from Festus of what had happened to King Agrippa. He brings King Agrippa up to speed. Verse 23, On the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp, and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. And Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not live any longer. But I found that he had done nothing deserving of death, and as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to write to my lord about him. Therefore, I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. How, how much more reasonable is Festus than the Jews? Isn't this sad? <laughs> you often find that in the world, over the church even. <laughs> They're more sensible than the church can be, unfortunately. Now, not always. I don't want to always indict the church, but I've seen this. So verse 26, in, uh, or chapter 26, verse 1. So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. And Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. Now consider the setting. This is important in Bible study. Consider the setting Paul's in. It keeps getting larger and larger and larger. He's before Festus, the governor, King Agrippa and his wife, all the Jews who hate him, and many leading men of the city of Caesarea. In fact, if you go to Caesarea today, you can sit in the amphitheater that Paul made this defense in. We've been there. It's huge. It would have been no small crowd that Paul got to witness to here. And I love, keep in mind, I love Paul's boldness. He doesn't hold anything back. Verse 2, I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, that I'm going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. Now, this is an illusion. Verse 3, this will be important when we get to Paul's appeal to Agrippa. Agrippa was a pious Gentile. He, he was nearly a, a, a Jewish proselyte. Okay? He took great interest in the Jewish religion. So he was very familiar with their customs, their law, their practices, and as Paul says, their controversies. So he was a knowledgeable man. And Paul knew that. That's why he says, I'm grateful I'm speaking to you because you know what's going on. <laughs> Verse 4, Paul gets, begins his testimony. My manner of life from my youth spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope to attain, as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope I am accused by Jews, O King. 
Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? And he says this, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheming. In a raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. And in this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and a witness to the things in which you have seen in me and those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I'm sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. What Paul has just given King Agrippa is his testimony. I said this a few weeks ago. It's important that each one of you know your own testimony, that you're able to communicate your own testimony to people. Because often in sharing your testimony with people who don't know the Lord, it contextualizes the truths that we preach for them. It gives them a context in which people can understand it and relate. It's important for you to know us. Paul's testimony, as you know, was a pretty incredible testimony. As is everybody's testimony, if you've truly come to faith in Christ, here's what the Scripture says you become. 2 Corinthians 5.17 If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. When God looks at our condition as being slaves of sin, He's not interested in simply making you better. That's not what God does. Unfortunately, that's how many of us try to live our life. We try to make our flesh better. God's not interested in that. He's interested in putting the old man to death and walking in a new way, a new creation. The word new doesn't indicate new quantitatively, but qualitatively. It's not new in number. It's new in its origin, its being. Peter said it this way, you've become partakers of the divine nature through those promises He's given us. You now have the Holy Spirit inside you if you're God's child and you are one with Him as Jesus prayed in John 17. There's a new impulse that lives in you. You are a new creation. God's solution was to make us new. Man's nature being enslaved to sin is left in the grave. That's God's solution for man's nature. That's why Jesus would often preach, unless you take up your cross and follow me, you have no part with me. Unless a man dies to himself, he has no part of me. This message of taking up your cross and dying to self is so prominent in the Scriptures because there's no other solution for your problem of sin except to put it to death. And God gives you a new life through the resurrection. There is a need for a new birth. If you remember John chapter 3, verse 3, Jesus speaking privately to Nicodemus. 
He tells Nicodemus a Pharisee, unless you are born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. Nicodemus, thinking on purely physical terms, says, how can a man be born again? I don't get it. And Jesus has to bring him to the spiritual reality of what he's talking about. It's a spiritual rebirth that man needs. Being born again. This teaching understandably sounds strange to our modern-day materialistic society. When you begin to speak about spiritual realities to people, it doesn't click with them. Our culture, and it's a satanic influence, has so groomed this generation to think purely on materialistic levels, they can't understand spiritual statements. In fact, they deny spiritual realities. Don't back off of that, because that's true. What they need to be shaken free of is those materialistic strongholds and see that the issue is a spiritual issue. And that's why Jesus always insisted on a spiritual answer. Today, anything spiritual is treated with suspicion. We've been thoroughly groomed to deny its existence. Paul's description, I want you to listen. I I summarized it of his conversion. Okay, His description of the road to Damascus experience gives great detail to what we call a conversion experience. Here's who Paul was before. He says, I myself was convinced in chapter 26, verse 9. Paul, in his mind, was convinced he needed to persecute Christians. He needed to oppose Jesus. You'll find this often in people who don't know the Lord. They are so convinced against faith in the truth. But they've been taken captive through deceptions, as Paul is about to highlight. But what did Paul do to Christians? In verse 9, he says he opposed them. That was his attitude towards Christians. He opposed them. He locked them up in verse 10. He put them to death, verse 10. He persecuted them in verse 11. He punished them, verse 11. He raged in fury against them, verse 11. And at last, he became one of them. That's conversion. So often, God calls the worst of them out. That should be an encouragement to each one of us, especially if you don't know the Lord. When you look at yourself, you might see great sin in your life. And you might get discouraged. You might despair. The Savior has come for sinners, not the righteous. Paul never let that truth escape him. I'm the chief of sinners. I'm the least of the apostles. And he just gave reason why he could say that. Conversion experience literally means you are going this way and you turn. That's what this passage highlights for Agrippa. As a Jew, Paul had it all. And yet as a sinner, he was condemned on many levels. It's the kind of radical change that still happens today, every day, to people. This is why we need to preach the reality of sin in the world, the reality of sin in our lives. Both the church and the lost still have daily need of Christ. He is sufficient for us. So Paul was made a new creation. He went from hating them, putting them to death, persecuting them, to becoming one of them. And not only to becoming one of them, but as he says here, verse 16, God tells him, I've appointed you as a servant, as a witness to these things. And God tells him in verse 17, I will deliver you from not only your people, 
but from the Gentiles. And what purpose did Paul now have, verse 18, to open their eyes so that they might turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified. Paul himself needed his eyes opened. He himself needed to be freed from the power of Satan. He himself needed forgiveness of sins. And he himself needed to have his place among those who are sanctified, set apart. And he received it all and never looked back. That's Paul's conversion. He recognized his own need. And that's what made him such an effective preacher to those he went to who he saw their need for it too. He was a converted man. This brings us in to the third pilgrim, Agrippa. Verse 19 of chapter 26, we'll read to the end of the chapter. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. You see, when true faith is present, there's not a perfect faith. None of us have been perfected, as James says. But there is an obedient faith. That's what we see with Paul. That there's deeds in keeping with their repentance. Now I'll say this, I've said this before, but I think this is an important point that we understand. Repentance is what? It's a change of mind. The evidence of repentance is what? Deeds of repentance. Don't confuse that order. Because there's many preachers today who preach and only look for the deeds of repentance. And I'll tell you this, an alcoholic can quit drinking. Does that mean he's repented? No. It's always an internal work and an internal freeing first. And then the actions follow. You insist on the changed man and the deeds will follow. Verse 22, To this day I have had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying both to small and great. I love Paul's and he's an equal opportunity preacher. He preaches to the small and great. Doesn't matter to him. Saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass. That the Christ must suffer. Now here's his gospel presentation to King Agrippa. Here's what Agrippa must believe. Christ must suffer that by, by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. Now as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I'm speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I'm persuaded that none of these things have escaped his notice. For this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, 
but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Then the king rose, and the governor and Bernice and those who were sitting with them, and when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, This man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, This man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Did you get uncomfortable when Paul speaks so directly to Agrippa? There's a, all the old guys I, I read, they were doctors of the soul, and they made their appeal to people. Paul zeroes in. He sees Festus reject it. Paul, you're out of your mind. No, I'm not. Agrippa? <laughs> Festus just played his hand. He doesn't believe it. So what's Paul do? Agrippa, I know you believe. Why? Because Agrippa had at least accepted the Jewish law. He'd showed an interest in his piety for the things of the Jews. So Paul knew that. He knew that Festus was aware of all that had happened with Christ. He himself said, it's not been done in a quarter. Agrippa, you know these claims of mine are not made-up claims. The whole region and the whole world at that point was talking about it. And Agrippa's response in verse 28 to Paul, in a short time would you persuade me to be a Christian? So direct was Paul with Agrippa that it forced Agrippa to have to wrestle with these truths. And this is what we need to do to people. Now it makes us uncomfortable to get in people's business like that. But is there a greater cause for which you could get in somebody's business? No. We so often want to gloss over these issues of salvation because we're afraid of offending, we're afraid, maybe we're timid, or what, whatever the reason. We need to get over it as a church and make people wrestle with this truth because the gospel and God has claims on them. God has a claim on each one of us with our sin. And if we don't come to know Him as Savior, we will know Him as judge. And not anyone here can sit here and say of your loved ones, of your friends, that you'd honestly desire that they come under God's judgment. Would you? No. Then wrestle with them with these truths. Force them to make a response to this. Agrippa, I know you believe. What are you going to do with this? What are you going to do with this? It makes us uncomfortable in our society. Middle Eastern societies are not uncomfortable with these kind of truths. They're very open. This verse I've put up here, Joel chapter 3, verse 14, multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. It highlights where so many people are at today in the world. God is always stirring people, awakening them to the reality of their need through the preaching of the gospel. Jesus Himself in the Gospel of John said that's why He sent the Holy Spirit in the world, to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. The work of the Holy Spirit through the church is to do just that. It's to convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. By the way, that's what Paul did to Felix. Remember? He reasoned with him on those things. 
till Felix became alarmed and shut Paul off. We need to engage people in this way. God stirs up their heart, He pricks their conscience, and He makes them all of a sudden uneasy in how they're living. Right? Now at that point, they can respond one of two ways. They can harden their heart or they can begin to seek the Lord out. Paul spoke so openly and plainly to Agrippa, to all who listened, really, about the Gospel. It's such a good example of how we as a church need to be with people. And I want to point out something that Paul said. King Agrippa said, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long. Now stop and think about Paul's humility there. Whether you come to faith in a short amount of time or a long amount of time, I don't care. But I want you to come to faith. Some people, in their testimony, come to faith immediately when they hear the Gospel. Some people, the Spirit of God has gone before you and you haven't known it. And He's prepared those people's hearts so that at the first preaching of the Gospel, boom, they humble themselves and receive Christ. Now that's not the, I'd say, the uh, common way. Some people wrestle with these claims over a little bit longer of time. That's certainly what my testimony was. And some people wrestle with these claims for a long time. Paul says, whether short or long, I will endure however long I must, but my aim is that you would come to faith. It's important that we understand that. We don't know how much space the Lord gives an individual. And because we don't know that, we preach. We preach. We appeal. We don't know what the Lord is going to do. And He doesn't tell us that we should. So here's what I would say. If you by chance see yourself in Agrippa in this passage, if, if you're in that valley of decision, maybe at one time you were hard toward the Gospel. Maybe at one time you didn't want anything to do with it. And now you find yourself at least curious, at least stirred, at least hungering for something that's absent. Maybe you find yourself as the Jews in this passage. Either way, my appeal to you is ask questions. Be honest about where you're at. Ask God to speak truth to you, to reveal truth to you that you might believe. There's a book I have. How many of you heard, have heard of the He's dead now. Christopher Hitchens, his famous British atheist. His brother Peter Hitchens is a believer. And he wrote a book, Raging Against God, where he dialogues about his brother's position in atheism and how Peter Hitchens actually it was atheism that caused him to become a believer. He saw the bankruptcy of that worldview. And something was wrong. He read books. He talked to believers. He asked questions and he came to faith. If the Lord is stirring you like Agrippa was stirred, understand that God is working for you, not against you in that. He's working for you. We can't bring ourselves to faith. That's what being a slave of sin means. We can't just will ourselves to do this. God has to first come to you and stir you. And so when we come under that 
conviction, when we find our hearts being stirred and our conscience being stirred, understand that is a gracious work of God that He's doing in trying to draw you to Himself. That's what He said in John 6. No one comes to the Father unless what? God draws him. And this is the process by which He does it. He goes on to say, which the verse isn't usually quoted in John 6, He draws people through the preaching of the Word. That's how He draws them. I want you to listen to this encouragement that Jesus said to seekers. He said, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. And I put in bold letters here, for everyone who asks, receives. And the one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Matthew 7, 7 and 8. Ask, seek, knock. Why? Because everyone. He didn't, Jesus didn't say some who knock or most people who ask. What did he say? Everyone finds it. I believe that. Because if God has stirred you to do that, guess what? God's not going to let that work fail. He will complete it. Everyone who knocks, everyone who asks, everyone who seeks, he says, will be answered. If there's a greater motivation for one who's in a grip of seat to seek the Lord, I don't know what there is than that promise that Jesus gives us. He will answer. They will find. Problem is, we don't ask, we don't seek, we don't knock, and we don't come to the light. We go on in darkness, stumbling through this valley, wondering what's wrong. So I have some advice for those navigating through this valley of decision, as Joel calls it. First, don't try to save yourself. This was a hard point for me to understand for several years before I came to faith. Paul says in Galatians 2.21 that if righteousness comes through the law by doing good things, then Christ died in vain. This is a question to ask any of your friends, family, maybe yourself. If I can be declared righteous by my own good works, why did Jesus have to die? Why would God let His Son suffer as He did if I could do it myself? Force yourself to deal with that. Force others to deal with that question. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, you know it very well. We are saved by grace through faith, not of works. We all come to that place where we, we understand we're bankrupt. We have nothing to offer God. We are in a position solely where we receive the grace of Christ. Secondly, understand this. You are invited. The invitation to salvation is a mass invitation. Now God knows beforehand those who will be saved and those who won't. We don't. And I don't want to know. I want to preach indiscriminately. Because when I look at people, oftentimes I judge them by the outward appearance. Do you? And I look at people as, man, that person can never come to faith. Look at how hard they are. And boom, guess what? They're going to be the next Paul the Apostle. I don't want to know. I want the invitation to be for all. Luke 14, that's what that parable is about. Jesus gives the parable of the kingdom where He invites the Jews as is who the first group is representing in that parable, and they all come up with excuses why they can't come to the feast. 
Oh, I'm busy. Blah, blah, blah. Jesus says, go compel others to come in. Well, we've done that. Then go to the farthest place and grab them and bring them to my feast because everything's ready. The invitation is for all. I love that point. I want to say this. Let me read you this quote. This was by a... uh, I don't know who this man is. His name was Bishop Lejeune. He said this, His the penalty, mine the sin. His the shame, mine the glory. His the thorns, mine the crown. His the merit, and mine the reward. Truly, he says, you will answer for me, O Lord, my Redeemer. In you do I put my trust. Let me never be put to shame. We've sung a hymn here before called Hallelujah, What a Savior. One of the verses in that hymn says this, Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned He stood, sealed my pardon with His blood. Hallelujah, what a Savior. See, the invitation is for all. And those great truths that that invitation secures is for those who believe. They can be yours. You are invited In that parable in Luke 14, Jesus gives the imagery of a banqueting table. And I I pictured it this way as I went through this passage of this banqueting table of everything that I'd need. Maybe you can relate. If it's forgiveness that you need, His table abounds in forgiveness. If it's righteousness you need, His invitation is come, take of the righteousness of Christ. If it's healing you need, The invitation is come to the one who heals all wounds. If it's strength that you need, His invitation is come. Take of the strength of His Spirit who He gives to us freely. In all of God's revelation, the very last book and the very last chapter, almost the very last words of God to man, Revelation 22.17, we find an invitation. Here's what it says. The Spirit and the Bride say, Come, Let the one who hears say, Come. Let the one who is thirsty come, and let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Do you think God wants people to come? Yes. Does it cost you? It's an exchanged life. But you don't have to put the down payment. He's done that. It's His life for your life. Your sin for His righteousness, as we just read. That invitation is so simple that even a child can understand it. And yet people hear it and hear it and hear it and they sit in their chairs, maybe in their homes, wherever, and they just harden their heart. And God the whole time is pleading with them, come, come. The last point, if you find yourself as Agrippa and you do ask God, wait until God answers. Because he will answer. Jeremiah 29 is a great passage. In context, it's talking about God restoring the nation of Israel back after captivity. But the application is true for us. Jeremiah 29, 11-13 says, I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil. To give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me. And I will hear you and you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your hearts. How about advice to us, those speaking 
perhaps to those in the valley. One, speak the truth and love to them. Don't only speak truth and don't only try to love them. They need love and they need truth together. And not only loving the one you speak to, but first loving the truth that you're speaking. Now this is an important point. Don't only seek to love the sinner. First, you've got to love the truth that you're speaking to them, or else it will come across as cold and dead. Love the truth you're speaking. That's the key. Let me ask you this. Do you love the Gospel? Do you love the Gospel? Because it's our hope. Unfortunately, love for the Gospel grows cold in many churches even. Our zeal for it runs dry. And when that happens, we will be ineffective in all we do. Do you love the Gospel? If you sense a coldness, then let me warm up your heart with some old truths that we need to re-familiarize ourselves with. Before seeking to convert others, check the temperature gauge on your own zeal. Think back on your own sinful state when Christ found you. Think of how many sins had overrun your life when He delivered you from them. Think of the failed relationships. Think of the high and proud thoughts that crowded your heart. If any of us professing Christians sitting here today can think of ourselves as any better than the worst of sinners, then we've forgotten from which we've been saved. Here's what Spurgeon said. It's a good quote. The the proper place of a Christian is never to get one inch beyond this truth. I'm a sinner saved by blood. If you notice in our own passage, how vivid was Paul's memory of who he used to be. He never strayed from who he was in remembering what God had saved him from. He could recall it like that. Why? Because that keeps him close to the Gospel and his constant need, even as a Christian, for it. We can rock ourselves to sleep with the truth found in Romans 8.1, which says there's therefore no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. You can comfort yourself and need to comfort yourself with that truth, but always balance it out with understanding that truth is for those who are in Christ. And you were once out of Him. And for those who are out of Him, there's a terrible condemnation. Praise God you are now found in Him. Don't stray from that truth. When those truths fill your heart, you will speak the truth in love to others. You understand the seriousness of their sin, and you understand the love of God, and you present both to them, those who need it. Secondly, don't be afraid to persuade people. And I'll say this, the greatest persuaders are those who remember most clearly what they themselves have been saved from. When you yourself have been most persuaded about your own need for the Gospel, you will be persuasive to others. If you yourself have not quite been persuaded of how great your need was for salvation, you're not going to persuade anyone. The greatest persuaders are those who've been persuaded by the claims of the Gospel. Third, be open to dialogue with people. So many of us are afraid to talk to people about their standing with Christ, and yet it's the most important question anyone can ask. We're like Moses who didn't want to go because he couldn't speak. Church, enough is enough of that. We're all called to be witnesses. Open your mouth 
and begin talking to people. They're all around you. Not one of us has an excuse for not sharing the gospel if you yourself have received it. You know the great treasure that it is for you. Don't hoard it. Give it away. Speak to people. One of the indictments God had on Israel in the Old Testament is found in the book of Hosea, chapter 8, verse 12, where he says this to them. He says, I've written to Ephraim, an Old Testament name for him, I've written to Ephraim the 10,000 great things of my law, and they've accounted it as a strange thing. When they heard it, it was unfamiliar to their ears. What an indictment. I'll tell you this, the more you yourself learn and grow in knowing and understanding the faith that you profess, the more you will want to talk to others about it. We don't dialogue usually because we don't know what to talk about. I think today in America we have more access to Bibles, Bible commentaries, preachings, Christian literature. And do you know that the church in America today is more ignorant than ever in history. What's our excuse? We don't know what to talk about with people. Get familiar with the Gospel. Get in the Word and speak. I'm going to invite the worship team up. We're going to sing one last song. But I want you to go before the Lord. And whether you're a Christian like Paul who knows they've been converted, whether you find yourself in Agrippa's place where maybe you thought you were and you've been stirred to, to wonder, or maybe you've just been hardened to the truths of the Gospel. In either case, and in any case, I want you to start asking the Lord to open your heart. Okay? And go before Him. Take some time to do that now, please. Father, as we sing this last song, May I, may the worship team, may our leaders, may everyone here make this song a prayer to You. Father, that we would, as Paul said in Romans 12, bring our bodies, everything we are, as an offering to You. Father, would You speak truth to us? We are in need of it. We need Your grace not only to come to faith, we need Your grace to walk by faith as well. So Father, help us as a church, as individuals, and as a church as a whole, be in a posture of submission, be in a posture of dependency, knowing that when we stray from that claim of the Gospel on us, we will fall. As Paul warned, let anyone who thinks that they stand Take heed lest they fall. Father, we are not sufficient in of ourselves, but Christ our Lord is. And to Him we look, to Him we sing, to Him we present ourselves now. Father, may You be honored this morning. This song is in Christ's name we pray.